Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Did I say good afternoon? Good afternoon. <laughs> so, um, uh, good to hear all your relationships are going so well. <laughs> I don't want to hear the details. <laughs> um, This is our fifth, fifth day? Fourth day plus a night. Um, today I want to talk about um, energy, effort, and also meditation practice. But in the context of bodhisattva practice. And the past couple of days, I've been drawing on quotes from a teacher named um, Trungpa Rinpoche. I don't know how many of you are familiar with his work, um, but he was a phenomenal, eccentric, and very controversial uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Uh, he died in 1987. He set up centers in um, Colorado, uh, particularly Naropa University and also in uh, Nova Scotia, uh, Gampo Abbey, some of you might be familiar with, um, and set up a, a, a lineage of teaching called Shambhala. And um, when I was young, I, I never, I, I got really into his book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Um, but uh, because I knew so much of the controversy around his life, I never really kind of jumped in deep. But now I'm older. <laughs> and, uh, and I've been reading his work around the paramitas. And, and I'm really, really inspired by his, his teaching. And I really encourage you uh, to, to pick up any of his books. I'd probably start with his book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Um, uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a T R U N G A, O G P A, Trungpa. And um, he was an alcoholic. Um, 
one, one biography of his life talks in detail about his uh, love for cocaine. Um, and people also say that he used to show up sometimes to his teaching so drunk that people had to help him like get to the stage. And then he'd sit down and give these crystal clear talks. And when people asked him about his alcohol consumption, he would talk about it in terms of Vajrayana practice. But this was all part of, part of his practice. And um, one biographer named Rick Fields says, he had never met anyone in his life who hurt so many people and did, did good for so many people. <laughs> Just kind of an, it, really interesting, you know? And I feel like now, you know, I kind of understand. <laughs> uh, especially, you know, teaching for so many years now, too. I, I kind of get it, you know, because teaching's a lonely job. And um, I imagine these teachers who came over from foreign countries um, who had so much power and so much projection and not a lot of friendship, not a lot of support, oftentimes no families. Um, so what did they do? They did the same thing they would do in their home country. You drink. <laughs> like anybody else, you know? And, um, and I think, you know, for those of you that have experimented with drugs, you know, if you feel emotions sometimes around loneliness or things like that, there are drugs like cocaine that are great. <laughs> no, I mean it. Like, they're really great. They, they help settle those feelings. And um, um, that's human, you know. So um, please don't use cocaine and please don't drink. But also we shouldn't throw some of these teachers out just because they did dumb things. They did dumb things and they were also really great teachers. So I think sometimes it's important to hold both of those things. Even though nowadays, I think we have better models and we have things like boards of directors <laughs> uh, that keep things a little cleaner. And um, anyways, so I hope you get the gist of what I'm saying in the best way and that you don't hear me asking you to engage in uh, illicit drug use. Uh, anyways, he died in, in, in 1987 and left behind an enormous amount of teachings that are really, really profound. Um, another thing that's really interesting about Trungpa Rinpoche, this is a little bit off topic, but um, he didn't wear the traditional robes that you find in Tibetan circles. He wore suits, really nice suits. And I often think, that would, I would love to do that, actually, <laughs> because I never get to wear a suit, you know? And I feel like it'd be so nice to wear a suit, but it'd be very uncomfortable to sit, I think, with your shirt tucked in and a tie around your neck and, and a suit. But I think this would be a, a really good thing. Uh, maybe next year we'll do this together. Uh, some of you know that uh, when we were in France, there was a woman who was a fashion designer in the workshop from Paris. And um, I said to her, I said, you know, uh, it would be great if you could design like, uh, um, uh, like contemporary robes. Right? Like, so we weren't wearing like Asian robes, but we would all have like a uniform, but that was more contemporary, you know? And um, something like a little more Chanel, you know? <laughs> or a little more Prada. Yeah. 
Maybe Prada is a little bit better, because Prada, I don't know that much about Prada, but one of the things I like about Prada, from what I understand from this person, is it's a little bit ugly. Like their whole thing is like it's beautiful and also like a little bit ugly. Right, is that right? Yeah. So like I think that that would be the best, best thing. So, um, and I don't think Prada's expensive, is it? <laughs> so anyways, sorry for the tangent. It's not the cocaine. <laughs> Here, here's what Trungpa Rinpoche says about this paramita. We each might have discovered some little truth, such as the truth about poetry, or the truth about photography, or the truth about amoebas, which can be of help to other people. But we tend to use these truths simply to build up our own credentials. Taking this Mahayana approach of benevolence means giving up privacy and developing a sense of greater vision. It's a really good sentence. Can I say that one again? Taking this Mahayana approach of benevolence means giving up privacy and developing a sense of greater vision. Rather than focusing on our own little projects, we expand our vision immensely to embrace working with the rest of the world, the rest of the galaxies, and the rest of the universes. Putting such broad vision into practice requires that we relate to situations very clearly and perfectly. In order to drop our self-centeredness, which limits our view and clouds our actions, it's necessary for us to develop a sense of compassion. Traditionally, this is done by developing, firstly, compassion towards oneself, then towards someone very close to us, and finally towards all sentient beings, including our enemies. So, this is the stage of practice where we've been working on patience, we've been working on morality, we've been working on giving and receiving and sharing. Now, we're going to use that practice to develop a compassion that can include the people close to us, people in our communities, people in our families, but then also people who are neutral to us, people we don't have a lot of feelings about, and then to all sentient beings, which include um, our enemies. Some of you know in the Bodhisattva vow uh, that we do, that we chant sometimes, we haven't together here, but um, I changed the tra translation from um, serving all sentient beings to serving all beings. Because traditionally there's always this term sentient beings, which means beings that have sense organs. But I like to kind of like blow through that and say all beings, which includes the floor, which includes the roof tiles, which includes the mechanism inside that clock, the electricity that runs that clock, the wind power that generates that clock, the architects that designed that system, the artists that design that software, the engineers that design the code, and compassion even for the code. Because I don't think there's someone there anymore ringing the bell. 
I think it's code now. I don't know, is it? Is someone up there ringing the bell or? No. It was, and then austerity came, and now it's code. So. At the end of all of our sessions together, though, we do chant, and we chant um, that life and death is of supreme importance, and time passes swiftly, and opportunity is lost. And so uh, let's wake up. And the reason why we chant this is to remember that there's some urgency uh, to practice some urgency to practice. Uh, in Zen, sometimes we say, practice like your hair is on fire. Isn't that nice? Practice like your hair is on fire. And I always thought that that was really funny because Zen monks and nuns don't have any hair. <laughs> and also, not only that, if your hair was on fire, it would be hard to have mindfulness and composure, I think. So I don't completely relate to that. But the point is, is that motivation is really, really important in our practice. And that's what I want to talk about today, is, is motivation, enthusiasm, effort, uh, and meditation. Most of us, oh, hi. Most of us, don't, do, you want to, do you want to introduce your children? How many of them are here? Hi. Hi. Happy birthday. Uh, most of us uh, teachers spend a lot of time talking about the importance of calm. Um, that's because all of us are so freaked out all the time and we can't sit still. Um, and calming is really important, like learning how to stop and to calm. But the other side of practice is virya, which is effort and energy and, and enthusiasm. And it's really important that we have both of those things going on. Because if you have too much calmness, you can't really get so much done. It's like, remember yesterday lying on your side <laughs> in the movement practice? And there's kind of a point where there's this inertia that sets in. And then you just like, you can't do anything. And that's why I gave the example of you're lying on your side. And one thing you could try is just, you know, just like really energized, you know. So mindfulness practice is about balancing calmness and energy. Putting them together. And a lot of people don't really ever stop in their life to do this. They never stop, for example, settle down and ask, what are my motivations? Like, how do I want to use my energy? How do I want to use this gift that is my life? Or there hasn't been deep reflection about what you want to do in your life. And so people end up going along very, very comfortably for a long time. And then one day they say, um, I'm so comfortable and I don't want to be so comfortable. I think I'm wasting some of my gifts. The Buddha said this in a really interesting way once. He said, a house gathers dust. Another saying you might be familiar with is, um, a ship is safe in the harbor, 
but that's not what ships are built for. A ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what ships are built for. It's hard for some people uh, to sit every day, to have a dedication to practice, to sit every day. And one reason might be because the motivation's not there. They're not willing to put other things aside. They're still really wedded to uh, their anxiety or their um, addiction to consumption and production. See, that's one of the things about meditation, isn't it? There's no consumption and there's no production. And another thing that really brings vitality into practice and also into your life is just confidence. Confidence. Confidence that what you're passionate about is worthwhile. Like if you're passionate about awakening, to start to have the confidence that that's actually worthwhile. It's worth something in a culture that may not value that. Confidence in the teachings. You've been to enough workshops, you've heard enough teachings, maybe you can start to settle some of the cynicism. And you can start to have confidence, oh, there's actually something real here. I can get on board with this. And also, and I think most importantly, and I think many of us felt this in some of the partner exercises today, which is just um, confidence in the body in the present moment. Trusting your body in the present moment and the information that your body is always offering in the present moment. Lastly, another way that I translate virya paramita is being wholehearted. Being wholehearted, enthusiastic and wholehearted, balanced effort and wholehearted. And it's taken me a really long time uh, to feel this way. Some of you know, because I shared this story uh, this summer on retreat, um, is that uh, when I first started as a young person, I had so much effort in my practice, uh, both in the Ashtanga practice, but also in the meditation practice. And one day I was on retreat, and the teacher said, during walking meditation, if you feel really settled in your sitting, skip the walking and just sit. And I thought, yes. Like really my body was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get enlightened on this retreat, you know. So everybody got up, they bowed, you know the routine. They went to start doing the walking meditation, and I just kept sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And um just, and, and I was really concentrated, but there was quite a bit of effort. And I started to get uh, headaches, which I never get migraine headaches, but like really intense headaches. So I had to back off a little bit. And then the second day, the teacher said, just a reminder that if you want to skip the walking meditation, you can skip the walking meditation and just sit. So that's what I did. I sat, so I sat the whole day long, no walking meditation. And then I woke up in the night with terrible pain in my pelvis that I'd never felt before. So I went to the teacher the next day and said, I have terrible pain in my pelvis. 
And, and they asked for some details. I gave them. And then they said, you have hemorrhoids. <laughs> so, meditation is very dangerous. You can get migraine headaches and hemorrhoids. Okay. So, um, when there's that much effort, there's always a bounce, right? an oscillation. And then I would swing to the other side, which I'd get so bored in my practice because there wasn't anything cool happening. And I would think to myself when I'd look at my teachers, aren't they bored? <laughs> like, how do they keep going all the time, saying the same thing, teaching the same thing? Aren't they bored in their practice? But um, I didn't realize it was just because my effort was imbalanced. And I was swinging between these poles of like needing it to be dramatic and then needing it, and then, and then being upset because it was so mundane. So that's why I want you to develop, I hope, a friendship between your asana practice and your meditation practice. So that there's a sense of what it's like to be in the energized movement patterns that we're learning and also dropping into the stillness and quietude that we're developing and that these two are friends with each other. There's calm, but we're not so addicted to the calm. There's a movement, but we don't need to grasp for more movement. There's a healthy calm between both. So that we can bring a healthy attention to what's going on, even if what we're doing is slow, and even if what we're doing is fast. It doesn't matter. In talking about this, um, Trungpa Rinpoche has a really interesting line. He says, in taking the Bodhisattva vow, we acknowledge that the world around us is workable. Isn't that nice? In taking the Bodhisattva vow, we acknowledge that the world around us is workable. When we have a balance between alertness and calm, whatever situation we're in is workable. Right? If there's too much calm, it gets a little sleepy, and we can't see how to make a move, just like the example from yesterday. On the other side, if we're too frenetic and too anxious or too worried, we think that what's happening is so fixed, we forget that it's workable, you see. So that's why we really need this, this balance. And I think of this balance as the ability to improvise. And improvise basically means that um, getting it wrong is part of the joy of practice. What's improvisation? It's not spontaneity. Improvisation is just opening up the field to include getting it wrong. Getting it wrong. I have a friend who's an improviser and said to me that uh, one of the key words that they learn in improvising is to say yes and. 
and they're, they're a comedian. So if anything's ever happened, they never think to themselves, no, or but. They just see a situation and they go, yes, and, and then they try something. And I really love this. So let's say um, you're playing music. May's a drummer. So let's say you're, May should be talking about this. So let's say like you're drumming and then something's going off as you're improvising. So if you go, no, 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 stop. Or you just stop drumming or you go, but, and you try to like lock down something else, there's not a communication going, okay? But if you see the bass players going in some other direction, you can then go, oh yes, and, and then you can like either go in that direction or like parallel that direction. I saw a concert one time with this amazing drummer named Jacques de Jeanette. Do you know, do you know who Jacques de Jeanette is? Jacques de Jeanette played on Miles Davis's record, Bitches Brew, when he was 15 years old. Okay, this guy's like amazing. So he played, so I went to go see him play with a piano player named Keith Jarrett. Does anybody know him? Okay, so the concert starts, the first song, it's like Jack DeJeunesse playing the song, it's a standard, whatever, play the song. Second song starts, Keith Jarrett's improvising, and Jack DeJeunesse starts playing something completely unrelated. Like not related at all to what Keith Jarrett's playing. Okay? So they're playing and playing and playing. And the song's going on and on. And the drums have nothing to do with what's going on. And then the bass player comes on stage in the middle of the second song and like ties the whole thing together. It was really, really cool. Okay. The bass player comes in, sees what's going on, totally Right? And then the bass player starts figuring out yes and yes and yes and then the two of them yes and and the trio now has a totally improvised song. And our experience is often like this. We have to go into a situation and yes and. Yes and. Okay? So today you're sitting in meditation and you made the mistake at lunchtime of going to Bindi <laughs> for dal and butter chicken or whatever you want to eat. And then like meditation's really hard because your body is digesting. So instead of like just going into sleep or being like, I'm such a terrible yogi, I'm eating Indian food, which is like cultural appropriation for my stomach. And instead, you just go, oh, yes. So like the acceptance and I need a little more attention on my inhale. Or maybe I need to sit with my eyes open. Because the longer we practice, and I think everybody here knows this, the easier it is to get into ruts. Ruts, grooves. The longer you practice, the easier it is to get into an unhelpful groove or get sidetracked. So please keep some balance in your practice. If you get into a phase where you're like, I love meditation so much, but I'm not going to do yoga anymore. Some of you say this to me. Then like, watch that a little bit. Or it's like, I love yin yoga. So I'm just going to like do yin yoga and I'm not going to do any kind of exercise. 
<laughs> just watch that a little bit. Or it could be the other way. You know, just running, just marathons, you know, and never any time to settle down. You know, watch that. Watch that. If you don't have a lot of energy for practice, honor that. But I can say from my perspective that one of the things that really gives me energy for practice is you guys. One of the things that really gives me energy is other people. And I hear about what's happening in your practice and it inspires me to practice. And that's why it's really important that you all have relationships with people who practice. They don't have to be your social relationships. You can have spiritual friends who maybe aren't the same people that you go get drunk with. <laughs> or maybe they are the same people you go get drunk with. <laughs> but maybe there's also friends you have that just the service you offer each other is to remember the values and the stillness and the practice that we're learning so that it keeps a flame lit about the importance. And it's not just for the company. It's because when you see other people internalize the practice in their life, it's inspiring. It's really inspiring. It's really inspiring. Another aspect of virya, is it okay if I keep going here? Yes. Another aspect of virya is, um, another way to translate it, is a word that I think sometimes makes people uncomfortable, but I think it's important to acknowledge, which is power. Virya is also like an inner power. Some people are very timid about their power. They're very shy about their power because they think that being themselves and being in line with their power uh, will bulldoze people will make people feel run over. And so they're afraid of their power. And when you're afraid of your power, it shortchanges your treasures. It shortchanges your treasures. So yes, uh, we all know that um, power can be misused. And we all know that power can lead to striving and greed and arrogance. But internal vitality, do you know what I mean by that? Internal vitality and internal power can be transformed into bodhisattva practice. Because nobody else is you. And there's a tremendous power in being yourself. And an interesting thing is, is that power can be balanced with mindfulness so that it's not unconscious. So this is the theme I want us to kind of like be involved with today, is this relationship between energy and power and effort and enthusiasm and calmness. And even if we just dial it back a little bit and think about meditation practice, I find, and I don't know if you find this, that sometimes in meditation practice, 
Like sometimes I'm sitting and there can be tremendous tranquility and tremendous vitality at the same time. There can be real tranquility and real kind of alertness both at the same time. And that's a really wonderful feeling. You know? The sitting is really alive. Dana, giving. Sheila, a moral conduct. Kshanti, patience. Um, and virya, balanced energy. All these practices are about letting now, letting this moment right now be a palpable experience. And they're about loosening our preoccupations. When you practice generosity, it invites something in your heart to soften. It allows you to see your life as a gift or as an offering, to see your power as an offering, not just personal. And all of these teachings allow us to see our contractedness and our holding and learn how to not fight with ourselves so much. And lastly, how to not pull away from our experience. But even so, don't get too excited because we all bring habits to practice. If you're a hesitant person, you will be hesitant about practice. If you're a skeptical person, you'll be skeptical about practice. And lastly, if you're a high achiever, you will be a high achiever kind of practitioner. You know who you are. But you start to see over time that these ways of relating to practice are coping mechanisms. They're coping mechanisms that are just forms of contraction that will soften if you keep going. And the only way to keep going is with virya, is with energy, is with motivation, enthusiasm, balanced effort. Balanced effort means there's energy and there's calmness. And they're always there together. Otherwise, our habits take over and then we just live in a world that our habits create. A self-constructed world that our habits have created. Glad you're writing this down. She's going to put all this on the Facebook page. Yeah, sure. So there's two more things I, I want to share about this topic. Uh, one is just about energy in your body, and the other is around uh, the energy of the Bodhisattva vow. Is it okay if we keep going? I'm checking in today. You know. You've all been sitting a long time. There's energy that runs through our body. Nobody knows what it is. Um, and um, there are meridians all through our body. In the yoga system, there are 72,000. 
and they go inside and outside our body. Uh, <clears throat> when you're breathing, sometimes when you're really tuned into your breath, you can feel some of these channels. Like you can feel the channel through the soft palate. You can feel the central axis down into the pelvic floor. But you can also feel how sometimes in the plumbing system, in the nadis, the word nadi means river, and sometimes inside these rivers, there are holding patterns, okay, called grantis. Have you ever heard of this? Let's say it together, granti. Again, granti. It's such a good word, isn't it? Granti. Okay, so, this is some yoga theory about energy that's really interesting which is, if you follow the energy of breathing, sometimes it kind of hits these constrictions. Like, for example, do you ever pay attention to the smoothness of just an inhale, for example? And notice how once in a while, in the central axis, the inhale will like hit a knot. And as soon as the inhale hits a knot, the mind and the breath tend to split. It's like you hit a knot and then you get distracted. And these knots are called grantis. And one of the techniques in Hatha Yoga practice is that you stay connected to this stretched breath and then you keep your eyes really, really still so that you're not letting energy out of your eyes. And what happens is, is the energy starts recirculating. Okay, kind of like a pressure cooker. One end is a soft palate. And one end is the pelvic floor. And so it's like you keep following the recirculation of energy and it builds up pressure in the plumbing system. Okay? And this helps push the energy through the grantis. Okay? Now a granti is a symptom of a samskara. Okay? This is where the theory is really cool. Because a samskara, you can't know. So if you're ever like, oh yeah, that's that sanskara, that's like that habit I have, no. A sanskara is unaccessible to consciousness. So the theory of sanskaras is that our deeper habits are not understandable. No matter how much psychoanalysis you do, you'll never find the source of a sanskara. Okay? But... The samskaras have symptoms, okay? And the symptom is the granti, okay? So the granti is like the known part of the samskara. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to have really balanced energy is because when you have really balanced energy, you can start to notice these grantis and keep the breath related to them. And sometimes that's enough to just start to unwind them. Start to unwind them. Even though you never knew what they were. I like to think of it like, you know sometimes you have a dream and then you wake up in the morning and you feel like something shifted. But you have no idea And then five minutes later, you can't remember your dream. But for the whole morning, 
you feel like, whoa, something actually shifted. Or you get up from corpse pose and something changed, but you have no idea what that is. So it's not to say that cognitive psychology or intellectual understanding or emotional analysis of our problems is bad. It's really, really important. Really, really, really important. And there's also another side, which is that some of these deeper energetic patterns in us can't be accessed just through cognition. Through pranayama, yeah. And attending to what's being felt, yeah. And then balancing it. So for example, if you have a lot of energy going up, right? If you have like a lot of energy up here, like anxiety up here or like a lot of rumination, or sometimes you're sitting and you start getting like hot up here, then focus more on your exhale and bring that energy down into your pelvis. Or if you find that your energy is really dropping, dropping and falling down, then inhale a little more and try and bring that energy up. Inhale the energy up. And I've already given you a map from the sacrum to the ethmoid bone. Bring the energy up from the sacrum to the ethmoid bone. And when you do this, your nervous system gets involved and sometimes does weird stuff. Like, um, you know when a dog comes out of a lake? What does it do? Yeah, it's like, yeah. And um, sometimes when you're starting to calm down, your nervous system isn't used to operating at that calm. So you'll start calming down and then your nervous system will like go like that. And it will, it's like it's throwing off electricity to get rid of excess energy. You know? And so it's good not to get too identified with that, like, oh my God, I'm having a Kundalini experience. <laughs> or, oh my God, I have Parkinson's. Okay? Probably not either one of them. I'm having a stroke, whatever. Yeah. Let your breath breathe your body. Don't let your mind breathe your body. Let your breath breathe your body. And one way to do this is just to give yourself into the pleasurable experience of breathing. When you sit at home, sit near a window. Uh, sit in a place where maybe you can catch some sunlight. And just feel the warmth of that sunlight on your back or on an arm. Feel a little bit of air. When you direct your attention to breathing, the breath gets energized. When you direct your attention to your hand, your hand gets energized. When you uh, bring your energy, your, your attention to your collarbone, like we were doing. Remember that? How your arm starts here? Your collarbone gets energized. We did that a lot this morning, didn't we? 
yogis have a saying, prana flows where attention goes. So wherever the attention goes, that's where the prana flows. That's why you want to be careful where you put your attention. Now it's not just about directing your attention, but it's also about receiving experience. The body opens when we receive the breath. And that's another form of virya, is directing your attention. Whatever you direct your attention to gets energy. So watch what you're directing your energy into. If you always direct your energy into Netflix, then that's what gets energy. So let me sum up. Paramita means superpower. Um, a paramita means to take something and go beyond. So one way you could translate paramita is uh, to have superpowers, to cultivate superpowers. Virya paramita is the superpower of enthusiasm. The superpower of enthusiasm. And one exercise that we could do if we had more time today would be to take a piece of paper and draw yourself as a superhero <laughs> of energy or a superhero of giving. What would that look like? Wouldn't that be an interesting exercise to do? If I were to find a way of properly translating virya as a superpower, I would probably say it's a practice of devotion. The energy of devotion. It's the energy that we devote to practice, but more importantly, it's the energy to do what's good and wholesome. And I don't want you to get like too pure about those words. Wholesome just means the energy for what doesn't create grasping. There should be a superhero who doesn't grasp. And that's their quality, is they don't grasp. And if you were to go to Mattel or one of these companies to design this, it, would, it wouldn't stick to anything. You could take the superhero, um, I don't know what you could do with it. You could put it out on the street, and if someone fell down, it would help them up. And then it would just move on to the next thing. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. She's, she's welcome here. So, Virya is inspired a devotion. And for a bodhisattva, which is each one of you, right, Klaus? Every one of you. Um, you feel, is that right? Are you a bodhisattva? Did you forget for a second? Could you remind Yeah, I'm reminding you. Are you a bodhisattva? Okay, don't forget. 
a bodhisattva feels that um, the only thing left to do in their life now is just to practice. Uh, in your family, in your job. Do you ever hear that? In your workplace. Practice in your workplace. Uh, in your body, in your sitting, and in your communication. And that practice isn't just for you anymore. Like after these five or six days together, the people around you will say, you should go next year. <laughs> It sounds very lofty, doesn't it, to say that practice is for all other beings? Doesn't that sound so lofty? Um, but you don't come at it through lofty idealism. You come at it because you really see that it's the only way left. It's like the last road you can take. Um, it's so practical because you practiced for a while for yourself. Every single person here starts that way. You practice just for yourself. But then you saw that your own well-being had a limit. Your own well, there's only so many saunas and so many uh, homes and so many outfits and so many PhDs and so many, right? Like there's only so many things you can do for yourself. How many lunches can you have? If you feel that your motivation is just for you, don't feel bad about that. It's okay. We all arrive like that. And then as we go on, we see that only being concerned about ourselves is actually creating more trouble for us. <laughs> right? So you come in, you're like, I need to just heal myself, my own well-being. And then after a while you realize, but just being concerned about my own well-being it's actually part of the pain. Because we see that the basic pain in life, and this is what the Buddha said, is self-clinging. And so if I keep practicing just for me, I can actually increase the self-clinging. And at some point this dawns on you, and you see that, and... Um, then you realize. This is what I mean by not idealizing. I idealistic is that um, if you really want to help yourself, then just go help everyone around you. So it's still actually kind of self-centered because you're like, okay, I'm really in this for myself. So the best thing I can do is just help everyone around me. My stepfather, who's such a kind man and like is so good to my mom, he said to me many years ago, he's like, Michael, you know what the secret of happiness is? It's really simple. Happy wife, happy life. <laughs> this is so true. This is so true. Happy wife, happy life. Yeah. You can't say the word husband in that sentence because it, like, it doesn't, I don't know how to, you rhyme like husband. It's a bit awkward. So if you have a husband, just think. Exactly.
So, happy wife, happy life. An altruistic person is someone who just wants to live with and live for others. And the others are not just human beings. They're all, all beings. You want to live with beings. When you hear about beings going extinct, when you hear about languages that we're losing, when we hear about rivers that are not supporting fish, uh, our heart is in pain. Because it's part of our ecological self. And this motivation gives you energy. Your friend is dying. You didn't sleep well last night. You get the phone call. You get on your bicycle. You go to the hospital. You show up and suddenly you've got some energy. You have, have you had that experience? Suddenly you have energy. Even if your body is tired, you show up. And then a spiritual energy, a superpower energy, will lift you. It will lift you in the situation. And you'll feel fine. You haven't slept, but you feel fine. So yes, uh, we have uh, adrenal glands that we have to take care of. Um, Yes, your body is your best friend. And yes, you have to treat your friend with kindness. So bodhisattvas in their waking lives have to eat really well. Uh, bodhisattvas need to go to CrossFit <laughs> and do mobility exercises. Uh, bodhisattvas also see that emotions are part of their body and their well-being and their hygiene and have to take care of uh, feeling their emotions, communicating their emotions, looking after their emotions. And they have to study. But what gets bodhisattvas most excited, what gives them the most amount of energy, is that they have no idea how they're going to serve. That's what gives them the most excitement. You're a psychotherapist, and you forget who your next client is. So you take a deep breath, and then there's a knock at the door, and you open the door, and you're like... <laughs> and it gives you so much energy, like, oh, whoa, whole new thing. And that can get really exciting, why? Because it means you can keep trying new things. So if you look at your computer and you go, oh God, it's that client again. <laughs> and you think back of like their nonstop monologue and you think, I would never do this if I wasn't getting paid full rate, you know, per hour. Then at the end of that session, you're going to be totally exhausted. And at the end of the day, you're going to be exhausted. And you'll need a bottle of wine. But if you clear your heart and then you open the door and you think, I'm a superpower bodhisattva. <laughs> and I'm going to just, we can try something new. Let's try something new. It's like a whole different thing. We can try something new. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to end with a quote from Trungpa Rinpoche. Here's what he says. But... 
I said not to do but and to do yes and. It's necessary and very important to avoid idiot compassion. Is that a great term? It's necessary and very important to avoid idiot compassion. If one handles fire wrongly, they get burned. If you ride a horse badly, you get thrown. There is a sense of earthy reality. Working with the world requires practical intelligence. You cannot just be a love and light bodhisattva. If we do not work intelligently with sentient beings, our help will become addictive rather than beneficial. People will become addicted to our help in the same way they're addicted to pills. Isn't that interesting? By trying to get more and more help, they will become weaker and weaker and weaker. So for the benefit of sentient beings, we need to open ourselves with an attitude of fearlessness. Because of people's natural tendency towards indulgence, sometimes it's best for us to serve by being direct and cutting. The Bodhisattva's approach is to help others help themselves. I love that so much. Sometimes to be a Bodhisattva isn't love and light and like, you know, it's like really direct and cutting. You're a psychotherapist and you might stop your client and say, you know what? For the past six sessions, we've talked about the same thing every time in the same way. Or you'll yawn. Maybe you'll look at your watch. Say, you know what? This might not be the best use of our time. This might not be the best use of our time. I just took a workshop this weekend where we were learning about uh, feeling our breathing and just watching stories instead of being so, and it really helped me. Um, would you be interested in maybe trying, trying this? Mm -hmm. Would that interest you? I, I know it's kind of different than what we normally do, um, but I notice we kind of always talk about this in the same way. And probably if you're doing it here now with me, you probably do it with yourself or with other people. Um, so what if we try and like wedge in there a little bit and see if there's another way we can tell this story. But first, let's just kind of like come into the moment. And this practice I've been doing, I'm not very good at it at all. Um, but I think it could be really, really helpful. I don't know. In any situation. Maybe you're volunteering at a hospice and somebody is uh, dying and they're scared and they're feeling some pain and they don't really know what to do and they've asked if they can talk to you because they don't want to talk to the Catholic chaplain. They want to just talk to like a secular volunteer. So you go in there and you sit down with them and your presence meets them where they are, right where they are. And you know that they are, ha have been drinking for most of their life. 
And they look you in the eye and they say, I really want a drink. So you know what a Bodhisattva does? They go and they get them a drink. <laughs> you go and you get them a drink and you sit down with them and you have a drink. And you have a drink. You don't just watch them have a drink. You have a drink with them. And then you see what happens. You probably won't be seeing any other people that day. But you just, you just see what happens. You know, your child counselor, the kid you're working with, doesn't want to sit there and talk to you. They want to crawl around on the floor and go under a table. What do you do? You put your notes down and you go under the table with them. And if they don't want you under the table, find out where they want you. Oh, you don't want me under the table? Where do you want me? And they'll be like, behind the couch. So crawl behind the couch and just see what happens, you see. To avoid idiot compassion. Idiot compassion is when you have a fixed idea of what compassion is. And we all know that that just leads to burnout. So your job is to help others help themselves by trying new stuff. So, this seems like a good time to have a break. So, should this be maybe a 10 minute, 10 minute break? Oh, sorry, before the break. Let's take two minutes and just see if there's any questions. And then we'll have a break while it's fresh. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.